Welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Welcome to another chapter of Turn the Page, the official podcast of Syosset Public Library. I'm Jen, and I'm your co-host for today, and I'm here with the writer of a really fantastic new novel about one of my favorite places in the world. Uh, So could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Yeah, of course. I'm Katie Hayes, and my book is The Cloisters, and The Cloisters is the story of Anne Stilwell a recent college graduate who comes to New York City to work at the Cloisters Museum, the Met's medieval museum at the northern tip of Manhattan, where she falls under the spell of some of the researchers at the museum and ultimately discovers a deck of 15th century tarot cards that will be key to helping her survive the summer, quite literally. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's great. Um, yeah, I really loved this book it just um like reading this book was like um if somebody had like read my dream diaries from like between 2001 and 2005 and just like took out everything that was in my head at that moment because like I loved the cloisters and I loved medieval art and tarot and all these things and you know I'm wondering um if we could talk a little bit about um what drew you to these things and to these places? Like what was your experience with the cloisters, for instance, and what made you decide to set something there? Yeah, it's a great question. And and first I should say, thank you. That's so kind. I think one of the things that's so wonderful about the cloisters is that it is often overlooked as a museum. And so you often will go to MoMA, the Whitney, the Frick, Met, obviously on Fifth Avenue, but it's really rare that people make it all the way north to um, the Cloisters Museum. And so it was a great opportunity to showcase the museum and the location, which as you know, is incredibly spectacular. It was rebuilt by hand from imported pieces of medieval and Romanesque architecture um, in the 1930s in a beautiful park-like setting. And so it really, to me, felt like a great place to set a novel. And in some ways I was really surprised when I started working on the book that no other novels that I have yet found, please someone send me one if, if it, if it's out there and I've missed it. Um, but I, I didn't, I didn't find any novels that were set there and the number of museums that make big appearances in literature are, are pretty substantial and the cloisters felt like it was being left out. And so for me, I'm always as a writer and especially as a reader drawn to atmosphere and setting. If I'm going to be reading a book for six to 10 hours, I just want to be enveloped in a place that is really lush and sensual and interesting. And maybe that's because I grew up in an environment where we didn't travel a lot. So books were my only way to kind of travel outside of where I grew up. And I really enjoyed that aspect of reading. And so I think as a writer, I'm still really drawn to that. And the tarot aspect for me really came together with the Cloisters. The Cloisters has a really wonderful collection of playing cards. Uh, They have also got a handful of individual tarot cards in the collection. And in 2000, I think it was 2016, it might've been 2015, 
I was at the Cloisters for a show called The World in Play, which was an exhibition that primarily focused on playing cards, but also had tarot cards in the exhibition catalog. And and I was so fascinated by the cards. And they, I mean, if you haven't had a chance, I know this is audio, but if you haven't had a chance to look at just even what medieval playing cards look like, they're spectacular, just unbelievably gorgeous. These tiny, I mean, you just want to hold them in your hand and take them home. I mean, oh, the amount of just joy you feel looking at these cards is pretty incredible. So I think for me later, obviously I didn't immediately start working on the book, but at a later point, I was thinking about the cloisters as a setting and, and that exhibition came to my mind. And so the tarot and the cloisters came together really naturally. Mm, that's great. And you're absolutely correct that those playing cards are just like absolutely beautiful and fascinating. And I think that like I've been to the cloisters so many times, but the first time I was there, they really caught my eye. And I think it's because like there's so much at the cloisters that is like, you know, something that was like made to be put on an altar and then kept there and looked at from afar, you know, but this was something that people like touched and passed around and shuffled, you know, and that's just like we don't have that many things like that that survive from that period. And they're just kind of like this beautiful accident of history, you know, that we even have them at all. <laughs> I love that idea, thinking of them as an accident of history, because it's true. So few of them have made it into contemporary collections. And that's why, you know, complete collections of either tarot cards or playing cards are super rare from the 15th century. Um, and the Cloisters obviously has some of those decks. And they also just have the collection is really wonderful. It's a lot of people think of medieval art as very doom and gloom and dark. And, and there is certainly some of that. I, I think I exploited some of that atmosphere, but it's also a wonderful jewel box of incredible colors and really bizarre touches and kind of interesting marginalia. And so I think obviously there's, there's so much there and, and a lot of writers have looked to medieval um, settings as well for inspiration. Absolutely. And I love the way that you depict the cloisters too, because, you know, in my uh, experience or like my relationship with the cloisters has always been, it's like, it's this really amazing, like safe space. Like it's a magical place, you know, it's so beautiful and I'm so relaxed there, but it was really interesting to sort of also experience it as this sort of like creepy and claustrophobic place, you know, and it's not even like, it's really like, it doesn't, you don't have to work that hard to see it that way, you know, because there's like a poison garden there, you know, like, so it's like some of the creepiness is like out in the open, you know, and I think it was just like a really, like a a really clever thing to like set the type of story that you're telling here, because it's such a rich place. And, you know, I know it's kind of cliche to say that the setting can be a character too, but like, that is just so true here, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, in some ways, I really want to apologize to all of the curatorial staff at the Cloisters for a couple of things. <laughs> I had to move the location of the library to make it more dramatic. I mean, you have to kind of play up certain elements. I completely agree with you, Jen. The Cloisters is a wonderful, relaxing place where you want to spend a beautiful summer afternoon. And so I feel in some ways terrible that Anne has the worst summer of her life at the Cloisters. But I also think it's the kind of environment that is really fun for people to spend some time in if you haven't had a chance to 
go there. And I also think in many ways, I felt a connection with Anne going to the cloisters and wondering, is this what medieval buildings would look like in Europe? As I mentioned earlier, I start, I really used books as when I was younger as a way to travel. And so I think there's this wonderful sense about the cloisters that it gives you an opportunity in one of the busiest cities in New York in a place that's full of kind of huge skyscrapers and all this glass and all this concrete and all of these kind of overwhelming, imposing buildings to have this incredible monastery just tucked away for people to enjoy. So I hope that after reading the book, people feel encouraged to go visit the museum itself, um, especially because then maybe they can make a donation as an apology for me moving the library <laughs> in the book. Um, so hopefully it works out okay. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the cloisters really is a place that just feels so ripe for narrative and transformation and um, playing up those gothic elements. Yes. Yeah. I am so glad you just said that because, um, you know, it's, I was like, it's such a gothic place. And then I was like, oh yeah, it literally is. You know, there's a lot of gothic architecture and art there, but also in the way that we mean it when we're talking about like literature, you know, it's, it's really, isolated like when you're there you can't hear the cars you can't see um the streets and you just feel like you're completely out of the city in this like totally isolated idyllic place but isolation doesn't always have to be like idyllic and lovely it can be really like creepy and um intense and dark and so there's just like so many interesting things that i think you do with that space and how the characters um interact in it what kind of research did you do? Like, did you make multiple visits and did you um, uh, spend like a lot of time there? Because your descriptions are just like so vivid. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. So in terms of actually visiting the museum, I was writing the book during COVID. So there was no way to travel to the cloisters which was fairly devastating to me. My husband is from upstate New York and we were in New York last summer and we finally got, that was the first time I had gone to the cloisters since 2016. So when I was writing the book, it was impossible to see the museum itself. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness for two things. One, I had been there previously, <laughs> so that was great. And secondly, Google images and the amount of kind of research that can be done via just hashtags and creeping through people's photos. And of course, you know, a shout out to the Met itself. The Met, as, as someone who also teaches art history, the Met's digital resources have become so incredible. They really started, I think about 15, 20 years ago to work on what they offer digitally to people who can't visit their collections. And those resources have grown so dramatically that they have a lot available for somebody who can't make it to the Metropolitan Museum of Arts locations themselves, but who still wants to be able to get a sense of what's there, what it looks like, what they might be able to do with works in the collection. So I think all of those things combined came together to allow me to envision the place. And, and I have to say, writing during COVID when you can't travel anywhere, the book was a little bit like a refuge because it was a place that I could travel to, that I was allowed to enjoy outside of the walls of my own house and, you know, my my very small mountain town. So I think that was really wonderful. From a research perspective in terms of the academic research, mm -hmm. I did a lot of research on tarot, but found 
interestingly enough, that the research on 15th century tarot, late medieval, early Renaissance tarot was incredibly limited. There was a single dissertation. There were a handful, I think two monographs, and then a lot of kind of tarot lives at this interesting intersection of historical artifact and contemporary practice. And so as a scholar trying to find academic information, you also end up running up against a lot of new age kind of contemporary literature that isn't as useful as what you're really looking for. So I found very limited resources on late medieval, early Renaissance tarot. Um, and that is one of the reasons why I found myself also turning to questions of fate and free will. I was really interested in the idea of playing cards, the idea of tarot, the idea of chance and randomness, and also how much individuals throughout sort of the classical period, in the medieval period, through the Renaissance, were fascinated with the question of, of fate or fortune and how La Fortuna, the kind of goddess Fortuna, survives almost untouched from the classical period into the Renaissance and survives the medieval period, which is fairly, I mean, it's sort of known for tearing apart everything from ancient Rome and from the classical period. So to see that kind of longevity and persistence to me was really interesting. And, and I started to really, as as academics do, when you end up with a hole in your research, you, you start to try to build the outlines of the object by looking around it, by seeing, okay, well, if I have this blank spot, what's around it and what can those surrounding properties tell me about what's missing? And so I think in that sense, my academic training was really helpful. Um, my ability to access research libraries, also incredibly helpful. And, you know, really, I was, I was really curious about the fact that there, there wasn't a lot of research on, on early tarot. Um, and I think, as you probably know, so much of that is due to, in the historical record, you, you just don't always have the, the information you need at a certain time, right? It's too old. Nobody wrote it down. There aren't records. The object has been destroyed. The workshop didn't keep records. The artist never mentioned it in a letter. And as a result, you, you don't have the kind of research on the ground to really do the projects. And I, I think, as you mentioned, one of the things about playing cards that's really interesting and about tarot is that they survived. I mean, these are tiny pieces of vellum that survived in, in intact decks, which is crazy. I mean, you could think about when you play cards with your, you know, partner or your children or your friends and how often you look at a deck and you're missing, you know, a six of spades. <laughs> and these are complete 78 card decks that have existed since, you know, the, the 15th century, it's, it's, it still blows me away that they managed to survive intact. Yeah, it, it's absolutely fascinating. And it makes total sense to me because one of my questions that I had written before was like, I wanted to know how your academic history and your art history and, and uh, teaching in particular may have shaped the writing of this. But I kind of already like, I saw a little bit as you were talking, because I think that that's probably why your descriptions are so rich because like in art history, you have to like get very good at uh, describing things that people aren't necessarily seeing. Um, and that's why I chose history and not art history because <laughs> I wasn't very good at that. <laughs> um, but do you find that um, there were other ways in which your academic 
uh, experience shaped the writing of this? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I know that the term often used to describe books like these today is dark academia. And I think it's a great catch-all for a kind of genre that encompasses everything from, you know, campus novels to creepy, gothic, isolated locations. And from my perspective, I think one of the things that both readers and writers find so appealing about academia is the fact that it's a closed world it operates with its own set of rules. It's a place that rewards things like obsession, cutthroat behavior, uh, favoritism, clickishness, all these things that we would love to think we've grown out of as adults. Academia really enjoys holding on to. And I think that that to me was an environment that I, I felt as someone who had been in graduate school for a long time, I felt very comfortable writing about. Not to be honest, that this is an average person's experience at a museum. Um, I remember my sort of last museum experience, I worked in a windowless room with a row of, of 15 year old Dell computers. So that's what most people's museum experience actually is. Not Anne's beautiful experience at the Met. Um, but I do think, having spent a lot of time in academia, I I felt like the world is still very rich for exploiting um, kind of those tense relationships, the way that you share interests with people that are very arcane to the outside world. Um, I'm always really interested in the mentor figure. I mean, if, if I'm reading a, a dark academic novel, let's say, I'm always drawn to whoever the teacher is that is kind of anchoring this group of, of younger researchers or younger students. Um, I'm, I'm really curious about what adult is willing <laughs> to kind of engage these kids in this terrible behavior because there's always adult an adult who's decided to just check out and, and let things go a little crazy and haywire. And so for me, I think there are so many interesting tropes and so many interesting themes here. And while my own academic experience was much more prosaic and dull than what you get in fiction, I do think being in that environment where it is very closed and very claustrophobic and very obsessed with specific things and also with, with getting ahead, with progressing, with achieving, with you know, if you're in a graduate program, you know, you're always, everyone's trying to jostle for position and everyone's wondering, you know, where is your job going to be? Where are you going to go next? And, and I think that kind of competition is something that we don't always see in dark academic fiction. And I was really, I was really interested too in the question of, of ambition and especially female ambition in this context. Hmm. Yeah, you know, one of my marginal notes uh, from early on just says uh, academia is already dark academia, <laughs> because even like when you take away like, yes. the, the, like the, the, the high intrigue, just like the daily life of academia is like, as you say, full of betrayal and, you know, advisors stealing their students work and, you know, like just all sorts of and. What's really interesting to me, too, is that so many of the relationships are so blurred, you know, because like your advisor is a professional contact, but also like they're a mentor and like a, a, a like a parental figure sometimes, you know, and there's a lot of blurred boundaries there. And all of your your colleagues or your cohort are like your friends, but also your uh, your competition and the people who are going to be applying for the same jobs as you, you know, and so there's. 
oh, there's just like, so, just talking about it. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I'm in life. Yeah. I'm not there. <laughs> but right. No, I, I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, it's, it's a great observation that there are such blurred boundaries. I mean, I think so often there's a scene in the cloisters where Anne goes to Patrick's house for dinner. And I personally have had countless faculty dinners at faculty houses. And it is this bizarre experience where this person you look up to that you're desperately trying to impress who you want to support you who you who you want to have be your champion but who you also desperately want to be friends with and somehow find a way into that person's life and it's a really bizarre confluence of you know personal ambition and professional obsessions and also some weird creepy, just general stalkery vibes. I mean, a lot of these faculty, you've been reading their work for, you know, 10 years, five years. And when you finally get to meet them, the feeling of um, being starstruck is is really overwhelming. And, you know, I think that that's something you're, and you're totally right. Dark, dark academia is already dark academia. <laughs> I think, you know, sometimes I, I don't love the, the category term, um, but yeah. That's probably why I don't always love it because academics know it, it's redundant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, another thing too, I think is that a criticism that's often um, lobbed at dark academia is that it does tend to portray this very, um, you know, like we use ivory tower for a reason, this very high class, very socially stratified, exclusive world. And that's why I think Anne is such a great character in so many ways, because she's not of this world. You know, she, um, and there's a lot of my, like, I, I had a very similar grad school experience. Like I was not from a rich family. I was raised by a single mother who worked retail. And I just was so conscious the whole time of how much more comfortable everybody else was around me and how that can really also help your career because you know especially as a medievalist like you can really get ahead like if you learn latin and greek and stuff when you're in high school and like like that wasn't an option for me like at public school number you know whatever like uh, out here um so I'm wondering, like, also, if you could talk a little bit about, like, how you chose Anne as a protagonist and a point of view on this world. Yeah, it's a great question. I should also say um, I'm a big fan of of Whitman in Washington State, the town and or sorry, of Walla Walla, the town in Washington where Whitman is based. And I have had friends who went to Whitman. And so I don't want I should say that I don't want people to think that I'm down on Whitman or Walla Walla, both of which are lovely places. But I do think there is a really interesting dynamic to come from a rural Western town and come to a place like New York City or want to go to graduate school on it in an Ivy League campus on the East Coast. And, and there is a huge amount of culture shock there. And I think in that case, to be honest, I think some of it was drawing on my own experience. I'm a Californian who really wanted to go to the East Coast for graduate school, really thought that I would you know, love being there and that the Ivy covered buildings would be great for me. And I spent, you know, it all, it only took one winter in Northwestern uh, Massachusetts. And I was, I'm like, get me back to California. I cannot survive this. I mean, any solution is better than staying in East coast winters. I do not know how you guys do it. You are the strongest people. <laughs> My husband is from upstate New York. And I always say that I am really weak. I can't handle bad weather. And he, you know, it's, it, it's like sleeting and 40 degrees and he's just outside walking the dog. Like it's no big deal. I, I, 
you guys are the hardiest people on the planet. (laughs) I am very weak by comparison. And, you know, for me, I did also feel this huge culture clash going from California to the East Coast for school. And I did my master's at, at Williams before coming back to Berkeley to start my PhD. And I, I really thought that kind of dynamic would be an interesting one to explore. Um, obviously, I think there there's a lot of great work being done at colleges like Whitman and on, on the West Coast. But I, I still think that, yeah, you when you come into a world like that, it does feel incredibly overwhelming. And, and usually there's only one or two people like Anne in those environments. Or I should say, historically, that's been true. And I think that a lot of places like the Met are working really hard to bring in um, more like young employees, young interns who are now getting paid better, who are more diverse, who are from more diverse backgrounds. But I do think for a very long time, academia, especially art history, art history is is really, really white and really, really rich. And I think that that's something that has been changing over the years. And certainly I know that it's not a monolith either. And I have friends who didn't come from, you know, white rich backgrounds in art history, but I do think that historically that's been true. And so it felt like a, felt like low hanging fruit in some ways. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it really creates some very interesting character dynamics for Anna because, you know, her relationship with her coworker, Rachel, who is of this much higher social stratum, um, you know, it, it occurred to me that like, even though they are nominally on equal footing as employees and coworkers, like there's, even within that, there's like, there is still like a, an unequal power dynamic, you know, because like Rachel, um, represents so much of what Anne wants, you know, and she sort of is being another direction by, um, oh, we haven't even talked about Leo yet, by Leo, the gardener at the Cloisters, who is sort of like an outsider like her, or at least is kind of like choosing an outsider, you know, status. And there's just like so many interesting dynamics here. Um, I think we love to, to see rich people behaving badly. And I think that when it comes to something like Rachel's character in the cloisters, I just love this idea. I think we collectively love this idea of rich people getting away with really brutal decisions. I mean, let's look at Succession, White Lotus, any HBO show that's currently airing. I mean, we love, and I love as a writer and a reader and a consumer of content, I really love rich people doing horrible things. And I I like it in particular, as everyone does, when they get their comeuppance. And so it seemed to me like a really interesting way to develop the story and and the relationship between them. And and it built a kind of natural tension in there. But I, I think also, you know, one of the things about the cloisters that I wanted to do is I wanted to create a world where there were no easy dichotomies where Rachel seems like a, a bad person and might be, but Anne might be too in some ways. And I think that's the kind of tension that I was also really interested in. Hmm. I love what's like going on within Anne throughout this story, you know, because she is such a different person by the time the novel is ending from where it began. And you can see her working through the choices that she's making and um, 
like figuring out ways to like divest herself of responsibility, you know, like she will demand that like this is, or she'll say like, this is what my career demands. Like if I want to, uh, you know, succeed in this discipline, I need to make these choices. And then oftentimes she will like lay it at the feet of the city. Like I, th- that was one of my favorite lines, actually. She's like, isn't that what we come to the city for? You know, isn't that what the city demands of us? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, kind of like, <laughs> yes. Um, so it's just really, it's fascinating just to see her like in real time, justify her choices, you know? I also think that we as as young people in particular often go through really formative experiences. I think whether that's a job that's really formative or a school program that's really formative or something that happens in our life that feels a little bit like a trial by fire, something that asks us to really drill down on who are we, who are we trying to become as a young person growing into like full adulthood in the world. And to me, I think that obviously New York is a place where people have been going literally for centuries to decide who they're going to be as adults. And I think I found that really interesting. And I think New York is a city demands so much more of people than a city like I grew up south of San Francisco, for example, than a city like San Francisco, where everything's a little bit more laid back and relaxed. And there isn't that kind of pressure. And there isn't that kind of, you know, really intense ambition around I'm here to make something of myself. And, and maybe that's changed in the Bay Area a little bit with tech. But I still think you know, a tech bro is still pretty like, yeah, I've got a startup and maybe something will happen. Um, and I think in New York, it's much fiercer than that. So I was really interested in, in, in also, you know, the way these atmospheres, the city of Manhattan, the world of the cloisters, even the world of, of Walla Walla, how these atmospheres work on us to change us as people. Mm-hmm. That is um, absolutely lovely. And it's it's such a beautiful note um, to wrap things up on. But before we do, I was wondering if um, there was anything that you could say about uh, what you're working on now or what is next for you? Um, that's a great question. I should be working on it more. Um, <laughs> no, I am. I'm currently working on a novel set on the island of Capri in off the coast of Italy. Mm-hmm. And it's centered around the death of a woman 30 years before and her daughter who goes back to the island 30 years later and the same thing happens. Another person dies. And it's also wrapped into the idea of um, there's sort of a famous necklace in Greek tragedy called Harmonia's necklace. And it was given by Hephaestus to the daughter of Aphrodite and Ares. And she had an an extramarital affair with her brother, as one does when you're a Greek god, right? And so she has a child from this union, Harmonia, and Hephaestus, um, Aphrodite's cuckolded husband, makes this necklace for her that basically curses the entire house of Thebes and ruins their lives. And so it's also this kind of, it's centered on the idea of mythology and objects that we mythologize and how that can be, um, really damaging. I think as a writer, I'm I'm really interested in the question of what are we capable of believing? Mm-hmm. And I think tarot is really an interesting place to excavate that. And I think in this in this next book, I I, I think I'm always working through that question of of what are we capable of believing and how how far can we stretch our imaginations and our credulity. Mm, that is such a great question to sort of to, to 
to ask through multiple projects. And I am so excited to hear about this next novel. And I hope that, you know, you'll consider coming back to talk to us about that when that comes out. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Jen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, listeners, The Cloisters, um, as of the airing of this episode will be available at a bookstore or library near you. This has been Jen in conversation with Katie Hayes, and it is time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode. Thank you.